the very concept of the institution of higher learning is about to be broken. He's a gym teacher. We have no idea what he's capable of. Enough is enough. It's time for a collected activity of all of us who are engaged in resistance in some form or other to learn how to collaborate together, to end our isolation, to end our particulars, and to become part of that universal movement that says... The revolution will be broadcast. Intellectuals are not a, a cherished aristocracy within society. They, they are sort of isolated within their own ivory tower. Now I realize that you must stick close together because you share a common goddamn backbone, but I want to see some movement. You have to have a movement, please. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. The Fundamental Movement. Okay, welcome back to Fundamental Movement. My name's Dean Dudley. We've got a special show for you today. Um, our our panellists today, uh, my fellow compatriot, Australian compatriot, based there in Singapore, Nathan Horn. Welcome back to the show, Nathan. Thanks, Dean. Good to be here. Um, how, how'd the Hawks go on the weekend? Uh, they got up, I think. I didn't actually get to see it. I was, uh, I was out uh, actually on a run while they were, uh, while they were playing, but I, I hear they got up, which was good. Well, to be a nice novelty if your team did more running on the field, actually, mate. Aaron Beatley in Kentucky, uh, the place where they treat horses better than uh, the locals, I hear, mate. I hope you're still digesting that peanut butter burger that you consumed in the Atlas. You're going to be it running that one off for a month, mate. It changed my life. I was just in Missouri this weekend telling the family about it. It was a, a great burger. If you've never had peanut butter on a burger, you need to try it. No ding-dongs and Doritos? No, bark and berries, though. They had lots of bark, lots of trees. Uh, in Toronto, having escaped the oppression of the Maoist regime is uh, Andy Vassily. God knows how he afforded the airfare, considering he's unemployed, but he's back uh, in Toronto now. How you been, Andy? Uh, pretty good. I had to dig into my pocket for change today to uh, buy myself a Starbucks in preparation <laughs> of this podcast. So, yeah, I'm back in Toronto and uh, looking forward to chatting with everybody here today. Okay, and a very special guest. We finally got someone on the show that's actually prettier than Joey Five. We have Amanda Stanick, uh, although another Canadian. It's questionable. Is, well, <laughs> yeah, he, he's well known as being the prettiest person on this panel, but we, I think we've taken a vote and you beat him in this occasion, Amanda. So welcome, welcome yes. to the Fundamental Movement. Thank you so much. It's great to join you guys. I'm enjoying your podcast, although I know I'm not really supposed to give compliments, so I'll leave it at that. Based well, on <laughs> yeah, we just thought we'd better point out the rules. There is there is no backslapping, no uh, uh, unsolicited uh, uh, flattery of anyone on the panel, and you will be shouted down vigorously regardless of your gender if you choose to pursue that line of, <laughs> of commentary. So today's show uh, is titled, If You Fail to Plan, You Plan to Fail. What we really want to discuss on the panel today is what are some of the essential ingredients that as PE teachers we should be taking into our classrooms and really um, uh, tend to have the best effect on the learning. So what, what we don't want to go down, we don't want to fall into the trap of discussing things that are non-negotiables, but we really want to think about, well, what are the essential ingredients just like a chef would if they're, if they're cooking a cake, you know, you, you know, you can't cook a cake if you're not going to include eggs or some sort of carbohydrate. We want to think about those really big, um, those big essential ingredients that we, we see um, 
or we want to see in all physical education programs. So I think I'm going to throw it to Nathan first. So what, in your opinion, what, what, what would you like to, or what do you think are some of the, the big ticket items in a, in a quality physical education practice? Well, I, without sort of just being a broken record, like we have, like I've, I've sort of said this, I think pretty much on every podcast uh, we've done so far, but it's, and I've said like relationships, like good relationships between um, teacher and student, between student and student, between students and parents, between teachers and parents, like just relationships um, between all of the stakeholders within the educational sort of sphere, I think for me is is one of the most important things. How do we operationalise that, though? I, I know you've said it, but I actually let's let's drill down. Are there some essential qualities that a, that the teacher needs to have to build relationships? You know, is there something a bit more tangible that we can give to the punters out there listening to this podcast on their second glass of red wine? Yeah, well, definitely. I think, like for me, and, and it's something that probably I've grown into um, as I've sort of developed my teaching practices, and I say this to people. Um, when I when I sort of like speak to them and present to them and stuff like that, you've got to be prepared as a as a teacher to um, be open to criticism and questioning by students. I think um, if the students can see you as the teacher as somebody that they can um, engage in a dialogue and a conversation with around their educational experience, where they they have the opportunity to to sort of say, well, I agree or I don't <laughs> agree with what you're saying, um, and have those sort of um, those frank conversations, I guess, like that. I think as educators, sometimes we've we've been um, brought up in a system, maybe where you know the teacher is this sort of person that must be respected at all costs, um, and maybe it's it's built this sort of level of um, where where, the, where there isn't that sort of like meeting in the middle. I've sort of rambled a little bit, but I think you know that that idea of meeting in the middle. If if your students feel comfortable enough to be able to come come to you and discuss things with you, and you feel comfortable being able to give them honest answers without feeling like you need to sugarcoat things or give them a an answer that is going to satisfy their needs, but you can actually be honest with them, I think that that's going to go a long way to um, building on some of the other things that I, I'm sure people are going to mention in a minute. Uh, Aaron. I yeah, I think the the one thing that keeps coming back to me, and, and as Nathan said, relationships. But before I, one of the jobs I had as a undergraduate, I, I'm, I'm a, by nature extremely shy. I don't like to talk to people, that kind of thing. And I took a job that I was personal training. And when I wasn't personal training, my job was to entertain all these rich people on treadmills, like Amanda is right now. And so, Minus the rich. <laughs> so what I found was, and again, every book about finding getting to know people will tell you this, asking questions about people, huge for developing relationships with people because people love to talk about themselves and it takes it off of us. No, if you're I not, if, no, if you're not <laughs> no, you don't, but other people do. So it's one of these that if we want to build relationships, the best way to build, I tell student teachers this all the time. If you don't know what to say, ask a kid something. They'll tell you. They'll probably tell you more than you want. But that's the key to all these relationships that, that Nathan's talking about is, you know, here, I don't know about where some of the people listening are, but you have to work carpool line. Open up the door and ask the parent how their weekend went or how things were going and those types of things that will help build relationships because if we don't, build these relationships, all this other stuff that we might talk about today, is it's got to happen first. We have to have those relationships. Mm -hmm. Amanda? Yeah, I think that it, 
to, to really become, we have to be open and let parents in our teaching spaces, not just let them, but invite them. I think that also is key to help build these relationships. We have to, you know, volunteer our time to do things at the district level or at the state level so that we can share and grow with, with colleagues at other schools and learn from those. Also learn and grow from our classroom colleagues who I know that I have learned so much from, you know, over the years, uh, the, uh, really the, the relationship piece, you know, without it, it's, it's really impossible, which, which is why I get so empathetic when I know people have 40 students in a class, they see them once a week. It, it's really, it, it, it's, it, it's tough, you know, it's tough to have those relationships. But I remember I had one student and she wouldn't speak to me. I was at a very uh, low-income school in Virginia in 2010, and of course, I'm up all night thinking about this little one. She was in grade three, wouldn't speak to me. I talked to the classroom teacher. She was the daughter of migrant workers, so the parents didn't speak English, so, so I tried to get a translator, and through all this, I found out she loved sharks. And of course, I was talking about her at home because I really wanted to try to reach her Well, my husband had a hard book cover of a hard a hard cover book about sharks because he just has all these random books about things because he's a doesn't, nerd. Doesn't he write books with like like a, a Stanley knife or a Swiss Army knife and, and fix the car um, while while he's while he's break dancing? I will tell you, he has them attached to his belt buckle belt loop all the time. Those knives, I mean, it's just hysterical. But anyway, he brought out this book. I took it to her without saying a word. She lit up like a Christmas tree, and all of a sudden, she wasn't verbal, but she was putting forth effort like I reached her. Now, I wish I could say I reached every student, but I'd be lying to you, <laughs> but it just, it, the fact that there, there, when there is a will, there is a way, you know, um, and I guess the other real thing that I say is, in terms of what we must have, is we have to get out of this bubble of teaching the same thing you're in, you're out and not providing a real balance of movement categories. You know, if we don't feel comfortable teaching dance, we ought to learn to be comfortable teaching dance. You know, tap the people around us. Can you hear my pregnancy heart? <laughs> my heart rate skyrockets. <laughs> That's not typical. I swear I'm not that out of shape. This happens. You guys might not know that. <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm catching myself out of breath, which is hysterical. So anyway, these are these are just that often comes to my mind when I go in and, and visit schools and when I was a professor and I'd be seeing the same units every year and there was just no variability among the units. So we weren't exposing the students to the different movement categories. We weren't giving them a chance to develop all of these skill combinations in diverse settings. So I'm going to throw it. Throw that Andy. Yeah, Andy's, Andy wanted to follow on from your comments there, Amanda. So. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's just a reminder of the, the time that we actually have. So I'm going to be very generous here in saying, let's say, for example, you have two 45-minute classes of PE per week. That's 90 minutes a week. Uh, when you look at the whole year, you can pretty well take away a third of that, leaving you with about 60 minutes a week. Or on average, I, I guess if you look at the whole year, you're going to have approximately 2,160 minutes per year. Your one-on-one -on -one time with students per year, if you really want to get down to it, is about an hour and 20 minutes. 
of quality one-on-one -on -one time that you have with your students. When you look at uh, a student in an elementary program, let's say you're teaching at the same school for five years and you have the same students from grade one to grade five, that's going to be about six hours and 23 minutes of quality one-on-one -on -one time with, with each student um, over that, the course of the, that time. So you better use that time to the best of your ability and connect with your students. You know, and, and I think it, it just, it's an essential that you, you spend time building relationships. And like Amanda says, you will find a way to do it. There is a way in with every single student. You know, I, I would often take time, you know, in the hallways and on recess time and whatever to, to really connect. Those are the times you connect as well, not just in PE. So, so to take advantage of, of those moments outside of PE as well to connect. But I think it really comes down to that, you know, the relationships that you form. And when you're aware of the actual time that you have with your students, it makes you even more cognizant of, um, of just how critical it is to, to really work on those relationships and, and get inside of them and, and really understand them and what makes them tick. So I think for me, that's, that's the, one of the essentials. I think I think you raised some good points. I want to I want to just extract uh, some things I've heard. Apart from Andy using the word cognizant in the sentence, which we'll ask him to define later, um, <laughs> there was a common theme that came through there. And it, I have my Webster's Webster's dictionary ready, Dean. No problem. I'm just get, I'm getting you mumbles because you always take the Mickey out of me when I use words that have more than two syllables. Mm. But uh, <laughs> essentially, um, what. There's, there's an interesting thing that you all mentioned and Aaron brought it up is the ability to question and whether the questioning's about the, or the skill of questioning, the skill whether you're questioning them about who they are as a person, whether you're questioning them about their lives, whether you're questioning them about content and knowledge and feelings and movement. The, we know from the literature that, that questioning as a technique is an inherently difficult pedagogical process. And Aaron and Amanda, who've worked, you've worked in teacher training for a while, I, I, I'm assuming you're going to, um, uh, he's going to get, you, you concur to some extent with me on this, is that's a really difficult skill to teach beginning teachers, is how to ask good questions, not just good questions about curriculum and learning, but to ask good questions, period. And I'm finding the next generation of teachers that are so digitally connected and tend to expedite their thinking and their feeling in the shortest frame possible, really don't put the same amount of effort into thinking about the sorts of questions that they engage with people that they might. So that's the first thing I want to bring up, and I'm happy for someone to push back on that. The second thing is that you brought, you spoke about these having these, Amanda, you brought this up about these wide experiences across the curriculum, and this has come up in our previous podcast, is that... I think we've all accepted that physical education is a broad, diverse key learning area, right? And it, it taps into all four of the learning domains that schools try to hit. And we need to be very, to steal your word, Andy, cognizant of how we, um, how, how we go about experiencing that with, um, with the teachers, just or with, with teaching the teachers. So there's got to be something in balance. So, We've got to be exposed to a broad, diverse curricula, and we need to work hard on questioning. I'd like to move, if we can, and I'm happy for someone to jump in on this, is, Andy, you brought up the notion of this limited time. And I, I, I want to explore that a little bit 
a little bit in a little bit more depth is it is it about or do people think that it's about making sure we get that hour 20 minutes with each student or are there some ways in which we can capture many students concurrently i know aaron's done some really good research in his dynamic physical education i've never read it it opens it keeps my door open the neither book, have i <laughs> <laughs> but the notion the notion that maybe there are some ways uh, if if we're about activity, we're about positive behaviours and all these things, mm. are there ways in which we can capture the students more than in the one-to-one setting? Who wants to have a go at that? Well, I, would, I want to jump in um, just yeah. before we get on there about questioning, um, if I can. Yeah, cool. Sorry to yeah, of course. Sort of backtrack yeah. a little bit. Um, you talked about sort of like as a teacher educator it, that it's difficult to um, sort of teach pre-service teachers how to how to question and I think that like there's there's two things that I want to say about it the first is that like it in some ways it's being able to question is is more of a like uh, I don't know if a personality trait is the right word to use for it but just having that disposition of of being someone who questions things logically um, throughout their life anyway um, outside of education just when when you see something happening rather than just taking it for what it is being able to actually question what's actually happening and why is it happening I think that's one one part of a personality trait so that's difficult to teach but I wonder as well how much for if like I remember back to when I was a pre-service teacher um, the idea that I had to have every minute of my lesson planned down to a T for fear that I was doing something wrong if I didn't have every minute planned. And I think that uh, stops you from maybe asking good questions because I think we all know from the emergent curriculum um, sort of side of things that, that often things will go in a very different direction than maybe you've planned for, and that's totally okay. It's being able to judge what's actually happening with the students that you're with at the time and judge the answers that they're giving to questions and then ask another question that might lead them down a different way of thinking. So I think that's, like you said, it is really difficult to teach. But if to go back to the whole sort of topic of this podcast, we're saying like planning to fail or or failing to plan, like I think sometimes like if we're over planning things, then we we run, run the risk of not being able to actually drill down on the areas of interest that our students actually have on a topic. We think that, um, you know, like, okay, I'm teaching an invasion games, you know, this is what the students want to know when actually I know like Andy, for example, like the way that he does his sort of invitation to units and and his little mind maps and stuff, like things could go in completely different directions and you've got to be prepared to be able to question that. Amanda. Yeah. I, really agree in that being able to... You can't do that. You can't butter him up. Questions. Oh, I just did. I'm a guest. I get special privileges. (laughs) Membership has privileges. (laughs) No, um, I I, I will add on that because uh, my pre-service teachers, they, they were really outstanding students and a lot of them felt like the reflection component was becoming just busy work. They were feeling like it was just one more thing for them to check off the box, even though I had the assignments Nathan set up as formative assessments. You know, I was like, no, let's just go again and again and again and, and, and had those conversations. You know, I, I had something planned for, for a workshop last week. I completely halfway through ditched what I was going to do. So you really want to help them 
understand, to feel confident in reading their students and knowing what their students need to switch gears. I think it does. I used to say, a superintendent said to me once, only give me the good ones, only send good ones my way. And, you know, which I responded, okay, but I didn't raise them. You know, there is only, you know, the key is that I really try to, the goal is that they would, my goal for them is that they got to where I was and understood how much I didn't know when they were leaving the pre-service years. So, because I was like, I, I know what I don't know. I'm, I'm not comfortable. I want to know more. And that's my goal for you. But if you start your career with this big ego, thinking that you know everything, that this is busy work, that you're not getting the point, then I'm not doing my job. And you need to be a little bit more humble. And so I think that all of this around questioning is is so critical because if we the local superintendent here in the district where I live is so incredibly humble. He's confident and he's competent, but yet he's always open to questioning what what the district's doing, why it's doing it. I go to these these meetings as a volunteer from the community and I'm so excited that my kids get to go to this district because the leadership is so willing to just ask the parents, ask the community, ask the students, what, what are we doing well? What, what, in your, what do you perceive us not to be doing well? So I think all the way through from the, from the students, if we can help them understand how to question the pre-service teachers, the teachers themselves, the school leaders, only then will change. You know, that's where the magic, I think, will, mm. will happen. And so I'm going to now shoot it to Aaron. Aaron's magic. Yeah, I, share your yeah magic exactly. It's just pure magic. Um, <laughs> I've, I've written this down twice, and, and it's one of these things we can go off later. I have a couple other comments. But a lot of what we're talking about is the passion that we have and the curiosity that we have and it's okay to make mistakes philosophy that it, how, how can we teach that? As, as someone in a teacher prep, is it, can I teach someone to be as passionate about this and, and curious and to open, I mean, I can open these doors. And, and the other side of that is this whole idea of making mistakes. And you all seem, have seen new teachers teach. They, you know, they stay up all night working on their lesson plan. And by golly, this is the first thing I'm going to teach. And this is the last thing I'm going to teach. And I'm going to get through it. And I don't care if it goes to hell. I don't care. I'm going to get through it. And, and, it's, and being able to change those. And, you know, Dean used the analogy of a, a chef. You know, if you put a little bit too much of something in, you have to be able to change it somehow to make it something different. And it's the same thing with teachers that they don't want to make mistakes. Oh, my gosh, my university supervisor is sitting here watching me. I can't make a mistake. And I don't know how many times I have said, just teach. If it doesn't go well, throw it out, change it. I'm not going to hold you accountable for your lesson plan. If you can explain to me that you tried it and you didn't feel comfortable with it, I mean, I constantly tell them that, but they just want to get through the lesson. And you hope as you progress through your career that you get away from that. And as Amanda said, that comes with us or someone at some point in their life, making having them understand that it's okay to make mistakes, that you're not trying to make mistakes, but it's okay to make mistakes. I think uh, Andy's up next. Yeah, I was just, again, going back to maximizing that, one-on-one -on -one time, well, maybe it can be um, three students and you or two students or four students and you. And that idea that we waste teacher or we waste our students' time uh, oftentimes, you know, and I've seen it happen and I've done it myself where you're having these whole group discussions and you keep repeating instructions and asking questions when 70% of the kids already get it. 
So we are wasting their time, and it's an injustice to them. Send those 70% away, then work specifically with the 30% that don't get it. So now we are in a position to better maximize the use of our time with those students that don't get it, you know? So I think to, and I'm uh, equally responsible for that. I remember lots of times in my teaching where I talked and talked and talked to the whole group when I didn't need it. And then the, the eyes start to wander and kids start to <laughs> fidget because they get it and they want to go do it. So I think one of the, the things, the essentials is to understand your audience and understand whether or not they get it. And those that don't get it, you hold them back. And those that do, push them on and let them get on with things. Dean? Yeah, I, I think, so I'm going to draw out some big ideas in here. It's ironic, isn't it, that we called this podcast Failing to Plan Means fa uh, Planning to Fail. But one of the things that, that's come out of this conversation is really ironic, but ironic, but also conducive to what some of the literature says in this, is that pedagogical error. All right, and how many times, and think about we're all, we haven't got Joey here, so we've all got more than two weeks teaching experience, but in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the grand scheme of things, how long did it take us to get to a point where we were comfortable enough in our own skin to teach a lesson to go, this isn't working and change it midstream? right? And not many of our pre-service teachers get it. I think you're right, Aaron. I think it's really hard to teach them that failure, failure is a great teacher. Success is a terrible teacher to, you know, to torture a cliche. And if we can embrace failure as a, a pedagogical imperative or a, or, a, or, a, or a learning accelerator, I think we're in a really good place. Because if we, if we accept it as teachers, we can then allow our students to accept failure as being a way of learning. On top of that, too, is, I mean, it's interesting what you said about the, uh, the, the kids that don't get it, right, um, Andy, and maybe Aaron's got a point on this. I know that there are some mm. models that go out there and basically say, you know what, if 50% of the kids hear the instructions the first time, that's all that need to get it. Because I, I, I've seen it in my own lessons when I teach. You know what, if 50% of the kids in the classroom understand it, the other 50% catch on pretty quickly because... Learning occurs even when the teacher's not standing in front of the room. Learning is largely a social experience. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if half the kids, or maybe it's not even that many, if a, 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 if a, if a critical mass of the kids get what needs to happen, mm -hmm. the rest are going to tail in fairly closely behind. I think then once the, the learning is occurring, whether it's error, uh, whether it's through error or whether it's through success, really the, the critical part is for us as teachers to be able to diagnose what's going on in our lesson, is to actually stand back and say, this person needs assistance, this one doesn't. So when learning's happening, and I think it, some of you may have read the article Vicky and I wrote on this, is that when learning's happening, you get out of the way. You don't want to interfere with it, you don't want to slow it down, but when it stalls, the really the really great teachers see it stalling and take action to to overcome that. Mm. Nathan, do you want yeah, to Yeah, like uh, just as you're saying that, I'm just thinking like I know like we've got three academics and an, an unemployed guy in the room right now, um, but as the only uh, <laughs> as the only practicing practitioner um, on the panel, like as you, you know, like you said. I'm sorry, Andy, we love you, buddy. We love you. Um, <laughs> I'm so I can oh, don't worry go on go on. <laughs> um, the idea of failing like like 
I know that there's times, you know, when, when I'm t- teaching something to kids that I think is really important and I'm just looking at them and, and you can just tell that, like, they just don't care at all. They're not interested in it. And it's at that time it's like, you know, you're thinking, like, do I continue with this? Like, do I do I push through and hope that they'll, you know, by the end of it sort of all of a sudden the light bulb will go off and they'll they'll think, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, Mr. Nathan really, like, made me do this today. Um, that it is okay to fail. It's okay to say to the kids, you know what, like, let's stop this. This is not working. This is not fun for you. It's not fun for me. You know, we're not getting any learning out of it. And and then <laughs> you get into that questioning of, well, why why isn't it working? Like, what's what's not happening here that's making this a valid thing to do? And then you start getting those ideas from the kids. Well, what if we did this or what if we did that? So, you know, to take it right back to the start when I talked about building relationships, like that there is a really important part of that is is being able to you know admit that you aren't always right and that maybe the kids ideas are better and and just but like you said diagnose what's going on whether it's that the activity you've planned isn't actually a good one or whether it's that the kids aren't interested in it or whether you know any of those things but being able to just sort of like take a step back and say, you know, this is not working and, and be honest with the kids and, and sort of like have a discussion around, you know, well, what, where do we need to go next? Um, Aaron. I think Aaron's up. Yeah. I, I, some of these things you go, we're talking about it. Uh, this whole idea, and I, I can't think of the line of literature. There was some research done recently looking at teacher with itness. And again, look it up. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting, but it goes what back to word? knowing with itness. With, with it, it. W I T. No, with it. W I T. Dictionary. Yes. No. Look at me using a word that the Australian doesn't know. Awesome. With it is. Yeah, yeah. Very low. <laughs> they don't have to translate. That's right. It's a, a cacology, Erin. I'm embarrassed. I can't remember her name right now, but um, she wrote a lot about this. The woman at Ithaca College. And, and, and it, with it, it, it speaks to this. Yeah, I believe it is. <laughs> and the, the whole idea of knowing. Yes, exactly. The knowing. What you just said, Nathan, is knowing your audience and being able to w- look at them and think, man, that, that's not going well. And that's something that I don't know you learn at the university, which me- leads me to maybe one of these essentials that we've kind of alluded to and said a little bit differently is this idea that you don't know it all when you graduate, if you graduate. You don't know it all and that you have to continue on to look at things differently and say, wow, I might be able to change that. I mean, I think that's one of the things I always talk about when I hear good teachers and you ask them how they teach something, they will always tell you, I tried it this way and then I went to this way and then I went back to this way and that didn't work. So I went to something else. So, and now I'm back to this, but I think I'm going to try this. Just constantly trying to change things and and understanding as as, um, Nathan said that we need to meet them where they are and be aware of them. And I'm throwing it to Amanda. Amanda. Caught it. Okay. You know, all of this, we have to really acknowledge, I think, that the reason why our pre-service teachers feel this way is because of the system in which they've come through. All right. They are, if we switched to an outcome-based system where there's a beginner, emerging, proficiency, and advanced they won't be told they're exceptional every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And I'm all, I think humans are exceptional. I'm not exceptional in what I do. I'm very proficient, but exceptional is if I could do what I do on a tightrope on a unicycle while juggling, you know, it's it. And I think that we ha- if we have standards and we give formative assessment and we, I mean, maybe we throw out the summative 
and we look at individualized plans and we and we look at what some of these states are shifting to i think vermont is really leading the cha the, ch the charge with this but understanding that when I was teaching 21 graduate students from Vermont who were some of their top, if not their top physical education teachers in the state, when they would receive feedback on work and it was proficient, I was getting phone calls on Sunday because they said, I'm not used to being average. Proficient is not average. Proficient is an excellent high standard that I set. And now we have these, we might have pre-service teachers. I've worked with school districts where every teacher, Westport, Connecticut, every teacher I swear I was like something out of the movies and Sarah G.H. was with me and Lindsay Simpson. They were all so eager to learn and they had they didn't care if there was a, a, a grade. They just wanted to learn. That's not the norm, you know. And so a lot of us as teachers and educators, higher ed folks are the worst of all. You know, we don't want to be told we're not perfect or we're not exceptional. And I think that our students, our pre-service teachers, we start them on this path of, of being scared to experiment or go with our gut sometimes because we've been brought up in that this is the past, this is what's going to get you the scholarship, this is what's going to get you this status or valedictorian. And it's it's competitive. It's not about learning. It's just about about the output. And I think that is unfortunate and I'll throw it to Dean. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, thanks everyone. I think that this has been a, this has been one of those unpredictable conversations that I suppose <laughs> has been fabulous because it, it, it went, it went full circle. And, um, uh, it's interesting. Amanda has brought up the notion that maybe, uh, I just got back from the States talking about standards and, and how they fit. And it's interesting in the North American context that, uh, grades mm. and, and standards are a topical issue. I mean, we've had standards based education in Australia for over 15 years and it's still an issue, right? So, uh, switching, switching to standards isn't necessarily the answer either, but, but Amanda makes a really great point is, is, any profession, doctors don't do it, lawyers don't do it, graduate with fully fully developed professionals. And I think I think definitely the higher education sector has a lot to answer for here in the model that we present. If anyone wants to do some really, really interesting uh, looking at a, a beautiful liberal arts program that really reinvents the notion of training professional have a look at the quest university out of um out of canada i hate to give you canadians a rap because i just hate doing that but i will um <laughs> that, that that quest university is doing some amazing things um in building uh problem solving you know presenting kids with large problems that they work one-on-one -on -one with a professor to solve profession-based problems and I've, I've had the pleasure of working with some of these students and I, I can tell you in their first year they're, they're, blowing the, they're blowing the wind out of teachers that I see that are second, third year out just because they have the capacity to talk about everything that we've spoken about here, the ability to think on their feet, to see problems as they arise and react to them. And I think until we start building programs and we start nurturing as experienced teachers like Andy and Nathan are now nurturing that sort of behaviour, then we're not really going to see that long-term change. But I do want to thank all our panel members for such a riveting conversation this evening uh, and morning in North America. Aaron, 
go and run off that peanut butter burger, buddy. We love you very dearly, but uh, that nearly made me sick watching you eat that. Andy, um, mm. we, it's the first time we've had you on the conversation where you haven't dropped out under a, a communist um, uh, censure, so we appreciate that too. Uh, Nathan, there in Singapore, I didn't make one joke about your height today. I'm so pleased about that notion. And, of course, uh, Amanda, a.k.a. the better-looking version of Joey Fife. We uh, thank you for being our special guest this uh, on this episode of the fundamental movement we hope you catch us next time and goodbye for now Taking medicine even though I see the